Alliances can be an important thing, really a critical thing, depending on the arena in which you're speaking. Uh, alliances, say, uh, in the lunchroom. Uh, alliances in the boardroom. Alliances in a political campaign. Alliances on a battlefield. Whatever the sphere, whatever arena we're talking about, it is vital that we know who we can trust, uh, who we can turn to, who's going to be there when those proverbial chips are down. Who, we, we need to know not only who is um, not against us, but who actually is rising up against us and who will stand with us when it seems like all the world has left us on our own. Uh, that takes me to this question. Have you ever wondered where God is? And by that, I don't mean in terms of his existence. Although maybe some of you are maybe we're wrestling even with that question at times. But that's not actually what I mean when I put that question out here this morning, whether or not he's, he exists. I'm asking, have you, have you experienced perhaps even, are you going through now, a time in which you are wondering if he's there? Like there with you, here with you now. Of course you have. Of course we do, if we're honest. We're going to look at a, a little book here together. It's a, a one-shot series and a book that is so short, it doesn't even have chapters. Just 21 verses, the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. So I'd ask you to go ahead and start looking for it now. Hunt it. See if you can find it. Um, it is there, I promise you. It's, it's sandwiched uh, in between some much better-known uh, books of the Old Testament. Uh, you have Isaiah and then Jeremiah and then Lamentations and then Ezekiel and Daniel and then Hosea and Joel and Amos and little Obadiah before you get to Jonah and, and the rest. Uh, we're going to be looking here at this book uh, this vision of this man named Obadiah, uh, as we're asking the question, as God's people were asking the question, are you there? Are you even there? Let's look at the Word of God. As, uh, Obadiah, Obadiah, starting in verse 1, reading on through uh, verse 21. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? 
How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. Though they have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter." Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the name of their the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. They shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame. And the house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zephyrod shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Well, I don't know about you, but I think we need to pray. So let's pray. The Lord God of Jacob and Judah, and Israel. We need your help. We need your help to understand first what we've just read. To be able to put it and place it into the larger, longer narrative of the story of your dealings with your people. You're moving towards us all the time. Oh, would you help us first just to understand what is this? How does it fit? And then would you be so gracious and merciful to us this morning to take us beyond head knowledge to heart application that not a living soul in this room would leave unchanged, unmoved, untouched because of an encounter with the living word of God. And we know that we can pray so boldly because you have bid us to do so. And we also know that what we are engaging with 
of these very words, the prophets have said that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Oh, would you help us to stand upon and under it now? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am reading a book right now, uh, the annals, the stories, the tales of game wardens in the state of Maine. It's quite a story, quite an anthology. One of them I read just the other night, and it's the tale of a game warden who in the middle of a very cold night, most of these tales, of course, are in the cold. Uh, This is, I think, towards the end of of a long, hard winter. This particular game warden was racing across an icy, frozen lake on a snowmobile, only to discover, as the nose of his snowmobile hit water, that this lake was not nearly as frozen as he thought because his snowmobile came upon an area that was being fed by a stream, and so that area being churned up as it was was not, being, not nearly as frozen as he had hoped. Now, the water was not terribly frozen, but his limbs begged to, to uh, protest. As he was in that water, in his gear, struggling to swim, to climb back up upon the ice and to roll and force his body, his freezing body, to a place of safety. I bring that up, that analogy, that image of being frozen Because fear can do that to you. Fear can freeze you. Fear can immobilize you. And that's exactly where Israel was when this vision is given to this man named Obadiah. They are frozen. We need to back up and and get a sense as to what is it that's happening here? Why is it that this vision was being given when it was to whom it was? Uh, Obadiah, this little book this little book with a really big message. Um, It is a time of of exile, the time of the Babylonian exile, Uh, roughly when this is being written, likely around the year 586 B.C. Uh, If you look there in verses 12 through 14, you can pick up in some of the imagery that's being used there in this warning being given to Esau, to Edom, I'll get to that in just a second, uh, that these invaders have entered the city of Jerusalem, carried off all of its treasure, and pillaged its people. Uh, you can see some, uh, some of the wording there. It is, a, it is a day of misfortune. It is a day of ruin. It is a day of distress. It is a day of calamity. That word is used three times. It is a day of, again, distress. That word now used a second time. It is an invasion. It is a horrific Time, unlike something any of us have ever gone through, and Lord willing, we'll never go through. It, it, this is a time of refugees, God's people, refugees, exiles. It is a time of, of, of displacement with nowhere to go except where you're being forced to go, which is an exile into the land of the people that have overtaken your place. But Babylon is not the only nation in play here. There is another one, a much smaller one, Edom. Edom. And we'll get into some of the particulars of that as we move through the points. But Edom was, in this time of invasion, is is a little nation down to the southeast, when you look at the map, 
up in the mountains, it's why you see the, the imagery used here of being up in the in eagle's heights and that sort of thing. If you know where Petra is, that's likely uh, a, a place within ancient Edom at the time. Uh, Edom was piling on, taking advantage of this opportunity of the Babylonian invasion of this horrific time in Israel's history. And that is the focus context point opportunity necessity of this vision because of the nation of edom esau piling on to the misfortune the disaster that has befallen god's people judah israel edom is being spoken to okay that's why we have this prophecy this book that we call the little book with a big message obadiah who's the audience now you might think oh well of course it's edom of course it's esau Eh, not so much. Think with me. Yes, they're, they're, the, they, they're the, uh, the causal point. They're the reason for the vision and its occasion. But actually, the audience is Judah. It's Israel. It's God's people. This horrific time is raising questions in their minds. What has happened here? Where will we turn? Where will we go? Does God see? Does God care? Can he help? Israel, Judah, is really the audience when you think about it. Because terrible times raise difficult questions. Right? We know that. Even in our little spheres of life, we know terrible times raise difficult questions. Well, what you see as we move through this little book and begin to see this big message, the Lord is speaking through Obadiah to his people to make clear, we need not fear, for the Lord reigns. Even in that, we need not fear for the Lord reigns. Now, how do we see this reign manifesting itself in this book, in this vision? Well, three ways, three ways. And if you printed it out, this is the, the three points of the outline. First, we have the assurance that the Lord will come to our rescue. Okay, he will come to our defense. He will come to our defense. That's the first point. The second is he will keep his promises. He will keep his promises. And the third thing is he will bring a reversal. So he will come to our defense. He will keep his promises. He will bring the reversal, the reversal our hearts cry out for. Okay, we see this in this little book, this little book with this big message. Let's break this down and the, the look at those three points in sequence. So first, he will come to our defense. It's quite clear as you look at the history of God's people, and in particular, this, this little book here, Obadiah. Uh, he has intense compassion for the weak. Intense, it's just his, the heartbeat of our, our living God, the living God, our, the infinite personal God, his compassion for the weak. Now, let's think about what's going on here, the backdrop of what's going on here. This is a time in which Israel, Judah, has experienced his, the hand of his, the Lord's, covenantal discipline because of their crass disobedience and their spiritual adultery and idolatry that had been persistent for generations, and he had been warning them of this from the start and over the course of those generations, and now it has come. 
Now it has come. That's why it is that they're experiencing what they're experiencing, this, this exile. But mixed in with this covenantal discipline is what I alluded to with Edom and Esau earlier, is this heartless opportunism. This crass, ugly, taking advantage of the situation. It's, it's, it's spoken of even, even in here, there, in, alluded to there in uh, verse 14. Edom, this neighboring nation just to the southeast, was even capturing fleeing Israelites and sending them over to the Babylonians. Here, have them. And in addition to that, then settling into the villages and towns and homes of the people that they sent into exile. Just, just crass, heartless opportunism. And the Lord says, enough. Such is his compassion for the weak. And in addition to that, coupled right up with that, is his commitment to justice. His compassion for the weak and his commitment to justice. These two things are part of the very heartbeat of the infinite personal God. Then and now. Nothing has changed. Hence the day of the Lord. The day, mentioned several times, but also the day of the Lord. If you remember a few weeks ago as we were in the book of Joel, we talked about that. Meaning the Lord enters. He steps onto the stage. And both his holiness and his love come to bear depending on how it needs to show itself. Salvation through judgment is oftentimes how the day of the Lord is, is described. And that's what's going on here. So the nation of Babylon is going to experience something here. Yes, in his sovereign hand, he had ordained that they would be an instrument of this covenantal discipline upon and in the lives of his people. That's true. That's true. But his sovereignty does not exclude, does not excuse their immorality. They were still accountable for what it was that they had done. They chose. They chose to do these horrific things to these fellow image bearers who, I'll put it a little tongue-in-cheekly, just so happened to be God's people. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to mess with God's children. So you have the nation of Babylon that on the day of the Lord is to experience in the worst way his justice, but also the nation of Edom. Now, here we need to talk about Edom. Long history between the Edomites and the Israelites, going all the way back to the book of Genesis and the rivalry between Jacob and Esau. It was from those two brothers that those two nations came. Jacob comes Israel, Judah. Esau come the Edomites. Okay? And from the very beginning, there was this rivalry between these two lines, these two brothers. And you, we cannot really understand the book of Obadiah without understanding that tension and that rivalry that had been going on for generations in all kinds of ugly ways. If you want to do a, a word search through the Old Testament and find out the number of times you get hits on Esau and Edom, it's quite striking and quite bleak in almost every case uh, in, in terms of what's going on there. Esau, from the start, 
wanted to grab hold of his birthright, grab hold of of the land. But the Lord had chosen from the start Jacob over Esau. He had said that the older will serve the younger, completely just counter to the ways normally of uh, that, that, that period. Esau refused that continued through his line, the Edomites continued to grasp, trying to take back, and in so doing, refusing to submit themselves not only to entrust their lives, their hearts, their destiny to the promise given to their brother, Jacob, but they are also refusing to submit themselves to the God's plans and purposes for this world. So you see what's really at the heart of their resistance, what's at the heart of their striking at God's people, a resistance of the covenant promises and a resistance of God himself. Psalm 2. Remember we read that a little while ago? Very much, very much what's going on here. This is what's behind what we read in verses 10 through 11. If the Edomites, if Esau wants to know, well, why is this happening? Why are you coming at me? Well, here you go. Here's the reason. Verses 10 and 11, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You were like one of the Babylonians. Instead of the brother that you should have been. So, God says enough. God says enough, and he comes to the defense of his people. Now, what are the implications of this for for us now, today? What are some of the implications that we could think about here on this point? No doubt some of you have heard the expression, this or he or she breaks the cycle. The idea being that one person takes a decisive step and refuses to stay in the dance anymore says, no, no more, no more of this cyclical, ongoing, repetitive um, motion of events, this dance that we're caught up in, I'm stepping out of it, breaking the cycle. Friends, the assurance of God's defense of his people is the one thing that can interrupt, that can break the cycle of vengeance and bloodlust in this world. And by that, I don't just mean literal bloodlust, but even just the hate of our hearts and the desire to strike back at another person. Do do the thought experiment with me. Think with me. Wrong, grievous wrong has been done to you. Okay. That's not surprising in this grievous fallen world. Wrong has been done to you, but on the horizon, so your heart beats with a longing for justice to be done. Wrong has been done to you. You long for justice. Of course you do. But you see no one on the horizon in your sphere who will bring justice, who will step into the corner for you. So what do you do? You grab hold of things yourself. You grab the wheel. I will take justice. I will have my vengeance. I will strike back. And then what does that do? It perpetuates the cycle. It just keeps going and going and going and going, whether interpersonally or internationally. 
But what if we knew there was someone who was just? What if we knew there was someone who in one way, shape, or form, either in this life or in the next, or perhaps both, would bring justice, and we could trust him to do that. That breaks the cycle. This is good news. This is really good news for a world that is caught up in the cycle of perpetual striking back and bloodlust and vengeance, whether in the lunchroom, the boardroom, or in the pews. This is the answer. This is good news. We need not fear. We know we have a God who will come to our defense. We also see something else, the second point. Why? How, how can we know that he will come to our defense? Well, the second point, he will keep his promises. He will keep his promises, and we see that here in this, in this little book as well. He is, will keep his promise to send a Savior. This is the most basic thing of all. The most basic thing of all, most, the most fundamental of his promises, as is, as is needed. You think back, now going back in, in the, the, the annals of history, even before Jacob and Esau, to the garden and the fall and what transpires there and God moving towards uh, the explosion of disintegration. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, psychologically, relationally, this explosion of disintegration that takes place in the fall. The Lord moves towards that and speaks these words of promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's the very first pronouncement of the gospel. I will put, he's speaking to, the, to Satan, Adam and Eve listening. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what we see over the course of the centuries that come forward as you read through the Old Testament is an unfolding of that promise, an explanation of that promise. Who is this one whose heel will be bruised even as he crushes the Satan's, Satan's head? Who is this that will come? What is it that he will do? How will he do it? Where will he come from? We see all those things unfolding as we keep reading, as we but keep reading the Savior, his promise to send a Savior, his promise to be our God, his promise to, that he would have his name upon us coming to our defense because he keeps these promises, even when, the, when questions and doubts are raging within us because of the circumstances and our assessment of our circumstances. So you think just here in terms of what's going on with Israel, Judah, the time of Obadiah's writing, Edom, Esau appears to be on the ascendancy. They're the big boys in town, not compared to Babylon, but certainly compared to Judah and Israel that looks crushed and on the decline and just nothing. Edom seems strong. Israel seems weak. And for that nation, it looks like, for that reason, excuse me, for that reason, it looks like the God of Israel must be weak. If you as a nation are weak, well, then the God of your nation must be weak. That's the way it worked in the ancient world. And so the Lord asserts his sovereignty, asserts his reign, 
showing that no, he is no bargain basement God to be trifled with in any way at all. Verses three through four, speaking to Edom, speaking to Esau, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and your left, your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Apparently that was not quite the rhetorical question they thought it was because there was an answer that came. I will bring you down. I will bring you down. For he is God. He is the infinite personal God. And these people are his people. And his name was upon them. And so he would keep his promises. And he still does. For those whom he has put his name upon. So I was thinking about how this shows itself in other places of, of the scriptures and other places of, of God's dealing with his people. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, this is the calling of, um, well, he was known in those days as Saul. We know him today as Paul, the apostle Paul. This is his calling to discipleship, to follow Jesus on the road to Damascus. And this is hardly what he was expecting that morning when he got up. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and as we read, you can see this, this idea, uh, the heartbeat of God's uh, towards his, uh, his own and his name upon us. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for dis- letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Think with me, folks. You're a bright bunch. How in the world is Saul persecuting Jesus? He's going after Christians. Jesus is not in Saul's crosshairs. How could he, Jesus then possibly say, why are you persecuting me? The only way he can say that is if that he has so closely identified himself with his people such that to strike at us is to strike at him, and he takes that very personally. Such is his love for his own, then and now. He, he, he identifies with us, with you, with me. With, can I just put it this way? We are precious in his sight. Now, a lot of the men in here just blanched at that. I don't want to be precious. Okay, fine. We are supremely valuable in his sight. So much so that he would die to have us. And that's not metaphorical language. That's not just symbolic wording. Because he did die to have us, to make us his own. You see how he feels towards us collectively, corporately, his bride? Do you, do you see how he feels towards us particularly, individually? Such is the value of every one of his followers this morning, every disciple, 
Every Christian, wherever they are, whoever they are, you right now know this. How valued, how infinitely valued, treasured, precious, worth you have in his sight. And friends, you don't have to be an egomaniac to believe that. You don't have to be filled with pride to say, I know Jesus loves me. I would gently counter to say, it may be your pride that's preventing you from saying that. It may well be your pride that's keeping you from being able to say, I know Jesus loves me. Such is his love. Such is his love. We see it right here in this little book, this little book with this big message. Friends, we have no need to fear. The Lord reigns, and he has put his name on us. He has put his name on us. One last thing, the third point. So we've got the the, the what. We know that he will come to our defense. We have the the why, that, that he will keep his promises, and it's because of these promises he will come to our defense. But how? How will he do this for a lot like us? That means a bunch. How could he do that? Well, he will bring a reversal. Now, reversal is a theme that you see throughout the, this book, and by that I mean the, the Bible, the Scriptures, but in particular this little book. Reversal is a huge theme in the book of Obadiah, but again, all through the Scriptures and God's dealing with his people. So just think with me in terms of the immediate horizon, which you see here just going on here, this idea of reversal. Uh, things as they uh, are soon to be flipped upside down and not the way they will be. Okay, you see a reversal through deception. Esau, Edom, through their pride. Pride comes before the fall. Reversal is going to take place. You see that here. Pride also, excuse me, a reversal through deception because of their allies. The whole thing about alliances. Their allies are going to betray them. Their allies are deceiving them. They think Esau, Edom thought themselves, actually was known to be, in the ancient world, a place of wisdom, of discernment. It's alluded to here in the book. Oh, aren't you so smart? They're going to trick you and do you down. Reversal through deception, reversal through retribution. You see this in verses 15 through 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. What they had done would be done to them in full measure. In full measure and in in absolutely fair and, and just according to God's character and dealings with these people. Reversal through deception. Reversal through... Uh, retribution, and one last one, reversal through dispossession. And that's what that whole, I'm not going to reread it, but there in verses 19 through 21, when you see all those, these peoples taking these places, and it's, you, it was, this group once had this control of this place, and now this group is, that's the dispossession. That's, if I can just put it quickly, short, uh, simply, um, what had been promised to Judah and Israel and taken from them would be given back. Reversal, reversal. You see it in, I'll read verse 21. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion. 
to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's, which points to something even bigger. True in that moment, but it's pointing towards, hinting towards something even bigger, the coming of a greater king. So now we need to talk about not just reversal in the sense of the immediate horizon and what was happening in Obadiah's day, but the ultimate horizon, the ultimate reversal, the finished work of Christ. Again, how, how can he keep these promises? How will he come, why will he come to his people's defense? Because of the ultimate reversal that we see taking place in the life ministry, the finished work of Jesus. The imagery you hear, see, even in this book, even in these, this little, these few, just 21 verses, Jesus would be gloated over and betrayed. Jesus, that cup referred to in verse 16, the cup of God's wrath, he would drink and drink it down to the full. His finished works and then and the fruit of his work such that those who were brought low would be lifted high. Those who had done so horribly wrong, what was due to them would fall upon his head. The violent really hard, ugly word there you see there in verse 10. The ramifications of it are pretty horrific, what it's getting at there. But the violent, even the violent, would be brought near through the violence done to him. The reversal, the great reversal, such as his reign, such as his reign. Um... It, it, it reminds me, it's, it's something like the way any great drama works, the three-act play, so to speak. So, of course, you know I'm gonna, where I'm going. Star Wars, episodes four, five, six, right? I mean, you've got the introduction to the characters, the great crisis that comes where it seems like, okay, they're done. And then the rescue this beautiful thing that comes. And so it's, it's, it's the reversal that takes place between the, 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 in the tension of, of Acts 2 and 3. And you see this in all of the great stories, not just that one, of course, but all through history. All through history, you see, you see this, this uh, paradigm. Well, that's something of what we have going on here in the Lord's, re- the reversal that he is bringing and has brought. Now, the question, though, begs to be asked, what would it look like to be a people who have embraced this reversal and who know this to have been applied to themselves and have taken it to heart. What is it? What does such a people look like when we have taken it to heart and embraced such realities? It means we're a transformed people. Something's happening. Something is changing in our lives. We become a people as Micah, the prophet Micah speaks of, of justice and mercy and faithfulness because we're not the same, because we've, we've taken this in, we've embraced it, we've, we've, it and the, we're being transformed by it. It means, it means we become a people of reversal. It means that we stand up for those who have no power. It means that we speak up for those who have no voice. It means that we lift up 
those who have been cast down. Why? Because we are a people of reversal. And what is it that Jesus has done in our lives? Brought about a reversal. And so this actually has, is meant to have feet with it. And, and I, one other thing, this alone, this great reversal, is the only thing that sustains efforts like standing up and speaking up and lifting up. It's the only thing that can sustain that good vibrations, moral, upright moral feelings will not sustain that. But the great reversal and knowing whose you are and who comes to your defense and his great promises, that holds you. That holds you through it all. We need not fear. Again, again, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns, and we see it in this reversal. Let me end with this. Um, I'm going to steal a phrase from Francis Schaeffer. We talked about him a few weeks ago. How should we then live? Okay? If it be true, then, that we don't need to fear because of our Lord's reign, what he's showing us even in these great things in this little book, how should we then live? Let me take you back. I don't know how many, I'm not going to do a show of hands for fear of embarrassing you, but just curious how, um, if you have seen this film from 1988 called The Bear. Uh, it's worth seeking out, uh, streaming, buying it, whatever. Um, I'll just summarize the story. So it's the story of this orphan little bear cub out there in the wild uh, who was adopted, who's kind of taken in by this giant grizzly bear. Okay, and that's basically the story of, of the friendship between the little one and the big one. Uh, it was filmed, if I remember right, in the mountains of Italy and Australia. Uh, it's just stunning cinematography. Um, all these different animals, in particular the two bears and I guess their stand-ins uh, on, on site in particular. Uh, I think his name was uh, Ben or Bob or something, the, the bear. Nine-foot-tall Kodiak bear on location with the trainers, really hardly any of their actors because the, the film is, one of the things that's, that's unique about it is there's hardly any dialogue at all and a, and a minimal score, yet it won all kinds of international film awards. Okay, back to the story. Um, one, I think it's towards the very end of the film. This is the scene that has stood up for me for years after I saw it. Uh, the little guy, the, the little bear, the cub, is, is on his own. It just the, the big one's not around. I don't know what, you know, they had a spat or something. But anyway, the, the, the cub is on his own out there in this field, and this cougar shows up. And the cougar, being a cougar, has this little guy in his crosshairs and is moving towards him across the field. And the, 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 the cub flees. He runs. He climbs up a tree. He drops him to the water. The cougar pins him. I mean, like, like um, has him up against the stream. The little cub's got nowhere to go. And so... The cub is trying to defend himself, but he's too small, and it looks like he's a goner, especially as the cougar swats him across the snout. He's bleeding. This little cub does, does all, he, he's, he's, I, all he can just to, to stand his ground, and he lets out this little growl because it's all he's got, just this little growl trying to scare off this horrible monster that's about to take him down. And then all of a sudden, the cougar, after hearing the growl, it seems fleets. And the viewer is just like, what? what? And then the camera pans, and you see what's behind the cub. 
his nine-foot-tall friend, standing up, bellowing, and this cougar, gone. And this tender little reunion that takes place after that. Okay, what's my point? The point being, if I could just play with the imagery here, there's a lot here that, that, that is um, parallel to what it's like when we are leaning into and looking to our Lord, the God of Obadiah, the God who comes to the rescue of his people. Now, it's not that we as little cubs become nine-foot bears as we face the grizzly. No, we're still the cub. We're still the cub. But now we know who's behind us. Right? And that sure changes a lot when you're facing down the cougar. That changes everything when you know who's there with you, behind you. So as we look and lean into him, as, the, as again, as it started off, when it seems like the whole world is against us, as we are uh, turning to and trusting in him when the questions and the doubts understandably flare up and, and roar, uh, we need not fear. We need not give up or give in. We need not cower. We need not fret. We need not flee. We need not compromise or catastrophize. Why? Because the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And that's what we see in this little book. These big truths, this big message in this little book. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for seeing us, knowing us, standing with us. What other hope could we have? Where else could we go? Where else could we turn? Opposition comes in many forms inside and outside. Hostility and rejection and shunning. Temptation, accusation, deception. You, you loom larger and you bellow. You bellow with strength. May we look to you. May our fears be calmed as we look to you. We pray in your name.